I am the fallen soldier, sailor, airman, and marine. Remember me. I am the one that held the line. Sometimes I volunteered. Sometimes I went because I was told to go. But when the nation called, I answered. In order to serve, I left behind the family, friends, and freedom that so many take for granted. Over time, I used different weapons. A sword, a musket, a bayonet, a rifle, a machine gun. Often, I marched into battle on foot. Other times, I rode to battle on horseback or in wagons. Sometimes on trains. Later, in tanks or jeeps or Humvees. In early wars, my ships were made of wood and powered by the wind. Later, they were made of steel and powered by diesel fuel or the atom. I even took to the air and mastered the sky in planes, helicopters, and jets. The machines of war evolved and changed with the times. But remember that it was always me, the warrior, that had to fight our nation's enemies. I fought at Lexington and Concord as our nation was born. I crossed the Delaware on Christmas Day in 1776. In the Civil War, I fought with my brothers and against my brothers at Gettysburg and Shiloh and Bull Run. I learned that we must never again divide. In World War I, I marched on the Marne and held the line at Bella Wood. The war to end all wars, they called it. I just called it hell. In World War II, I fought everywhere. The beaches of Normandy, the Battle of the Bulge, the hell of Guadalcanal. I stood against tyranny and kept darkness from consuming the world. In Korea, I landed at Incheon and broke out of the Chosen Reservoir. They called it the Forgotten War, but I never forgot. In Vietnam, I fought in the Mekong Delta, at Khe Sanh and Hamburger Hill. Some say my country wavered, but I did not waver, ever. In the recent past, I have fought in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Baghdad, Fallujah, and Ramadi, in Kunar, Helmand, and Kandahar. As technology advanced, I used night vision goggles and global positioning systems and drones and lasers and thermal optics. But it was still me, a human being, that did the work. It was me that patrolled up the mountains or across the desert or through the streets. It was me that suffered in merciless heat and bitter cold. It was me that went out night after night to confront our nation's enemies and confront evil face to face. It was me. Remember me. I was a warrior. But also remember that I was not only a warrior. Remember also that I was a son, a brother, a father. I was a daughter, a sister, a mother. I was a person, like you, a real person with hopes and dreams for the future. I wanted to have children. I wanted to see my son score a touchdown or shoot the winning basket. I wanted to walk my daughter down the aisle. I wanted to kiss my wife again. When I told her I would be with her until the end, I meant it. When I told my children I would always be there for them, I meant it. But I gave all that away. All of it. On that distant battlefield, 
amongst the fear and the fire and the bullets, or in the sky above enemy territory filled with flak, or on the unforgiving sea where we fought against the enemy and against the depths of the abyss. There, in those awful places, I held the line. I did not waver and I did not hesitate. I, the soldier, sailor, airman, or marine, I stood my ground and sacrificed my life, my future, my hopes, my dreams. I sacrificed everything for you. This Memorial Day, remember me, the fallen warrior, and remember me not for my sake, but for yours. Remember what I sacrificed so you can truly appreciate the incredible treasures you have. Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. You have the joys of life, the joys that I gave up so that you can relish in them. A cool wind in the air, the gentle spring grass on your bare feet, the warm summer sun on your face, family, friends, and freedom. Never forget where it all came from. It came from sacrifice, the supreme sacrifice. Live a life that honors us, the fallen heroes. Remember us and make every day Memorial Day.
Good morning, Good Shepherd. Today we're going to continue in our study of the book of Revelation. And we have a, an incredible passage today in Revelation chapter 5. And uh, I struggle with uh, giving this passage a name. I, I, my first thought was worthy is the Lamb because it's, that's just really the focus of the passage. But there's also a, a very important concept that is underlying all of this as Christ is honored and glorified. And so I, I came with this title, In Search of Paradise Regained, because that is going to be an important part of this passage. Well, you know, when our, when our children were young, they used to watch a cartoon called Pinky and the Brain. And every episode began with Pinky asking Brain, what are we going to do tonight, Brain? And the Brain would respond, well, what we do every night, Pinky, try to take over the world. And you kind of laugh when you hear that because in many ways, that's kind of been the theme of this world where every episode of Pinky and the Brain is about someone trying to take over the world Uh, We see that in our own world. Throughout history, there have been many pretenders to earth's throne who who sought to conquer and rule the world. The first and most notorious ruler was Satan. After his rebellion against God was crushed uh, and and his satanic followers or his his angels were were thrown out of heaven, uh, he eventually became the god of this world. And he inspired numerous other human uh, people to try to uh, take control of the world, to try their hand at conquest. Men such as Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Darius, Alexander the Great, all the emperors of Rome. There was Attila the Hun, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Lenin. Stalin, Hitler, you know the names. And in the future, there's going to come the most powerful Satan-possessed man who will seek to conquer the world, and his name is the final Antichrist. You know, in in every one of those cases, um, these conquerors have arisen in the name of establishing a better world. You know, an ideal world, a a utopia, or a paradise. Every political ideology promises a better world. That's, That's the point of communism and socialism and even capitalism. They all hold out the promise of a better world. But all of these leaders and all of these ideologies have one thing in common. They all failed. Only one individual has the right to rule and to reign in this world. Only one has the power to make this world a utopia or a paradise, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And one day he will come to take back what is rightfully his and to remove that usurper Satan from his throne and all those who follow after him. 
Now, at this point, let me remind you of an important concept that uh, begins in Genesis and culminates in Revelation. It, it's the com. It's the uh, it's the uh, concept of forfeiture. If you look up forfeit in the dictionary, you'll see it says to lose or be deprived of property or a right or privilege as a penalty for wrongdoing. And you see, when Adam and Eve sinned, they forfeited, well, everything. They forfeited their intimate walk with God. What did they do when they sinned? They hid from God. Uh, they they forfeited their harmonious relationship with one another. Uh, they found themselves naked, ashamed, and in conflict. Uh, they they lost, they forfeited paradise, uh, the Garden of Eden, this perfect ideal place in which to live. They forfeited creation. Uh, a curse came upon the entire creation uh, of God. Uh, they forfeited their rule. Satan became the God of this world. They forfeited their freedom. Uh, they became slaves to sin. They forfeited their lives. They lost their, their physical and their spiritual lives. This is what the, the, the text calls the ultimate forfeiture. You lose everything. And they forfeited the inheritance of all of their descendants. You see, nothing could be grimmer or more defeating or more depressing. But faith, thankfully, God doesn't leave us there. He gave us hope in what is called the, the first gospel in Genesis 3.15 when he told the serpent that there is one coming that would crush his head. And there's one coming who's going to take back all that Adam and Eve forfeited in their original sin. So the concept of forfeiture, he adds to the, to that, he adds the concept of redemption. See, there's one coming to redeem not only humanity, but all of creation itself. Now, as we come to Revelation chapter five, we see the initiation of redemption of all that was forfeited in the fall and the regaining of paradise. Now, and let me remind you that the events in chapter 5 are a continuation of the events in chapter 4. Uh, the focus there in chapter 4 is on the throne of God in heaven. And it's a majestic scene. Uh, the, the, the glory of God emanates from the throne, uh, refracting all the colors of the spectrum. There's an emerald green rainbow that surrounds the, the throne sitting on a crystal clear pavement. There are flashes of lightning and peals of thunder from the, the throne foreshadowing the divine judgments to come. And gathered around the throne are, are four living beings, which are uh, a type of angel known as cherubim. Uh, there are 24 elders representing the, the, the resurrected, glorified church. Uh, and the Holy Spirit uh, is represented in his sevenfold glory. The cherubim and the elders 
begin a series of hymns of praise that celebrate God as creator and as redeemer. And they are rejoicing in, the, in his right to be able to take back what was rightfully his. And, and see, this really, this is the moment that all of God's people have been waiting for. This is the moment that all of creation has been longing for, groaning for, waiting to occur. So let's read about this in Revelation chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with twenty-four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of his right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And this is the word of God. Let's pray together. Our Father, I do not know how I could possibly improve upon the praise that we just read. And Father, we just trust, we pray that you would receive these words uh, from our hearts today. And we pray that your spirit that, that leads and directs would give us understanding, give us enlightenment. Uh, Lord, encourage us and strengthen us to, to hope in you to have assurance as we face the difficulties of this world. And God, may we be pleasing to you in every way we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. In verse 1, we, we come to a critical 
verse in this passage. And he says, I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that is God the Father, a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Now, God stretched out his right hand, showing the significance of this uh, book, and he he holds it in his hand. Uh, the word translated book there is is doesn't refer to a book in the modern sense uh, of, of what we know as a book, but it refers to a scroll. Uh, a scroll was a, a long piece of uh, papyrus or uh, animal skin rolled together to the center and then sealed. And this scroll, it says, was sealed, was written inside and on the back and sealed up with seven seals. Now, the seven seals immediately tell us that this was a deed or a contract because this kind of contract was known all over the, the Middle East in ancient times, and it was used by the Romans from the time of Nero on. And the full contract would be written out on the inside of that scroll, and then it would be rolled up, and then on the outside, the contents of that uh, uh, scroll would be briefly described or summarized on the exterior, and then it would be sealed. So um, the uh, all kinds of uh, of transactions and and uh, and legal documents were consummated this way, including marriage contracts, rental and lease agreements, and, and the release of slaves. If you read Jeremiah chapter 32, you can see a transaction uh, of, uh, of a deed purchase uh, for land, and it's, it's signed, it's witnessed, and it's sealed in a similar manner. Uh, and it, that's from a Hebrew perspective. The scroll that John saw in God's hand is the title deed to the earth, which is what he will give to Christ. But unlike other deeds, this deed doesn't describe the inheritance that Christ will receive, but it describes how Christ will take back what has been lost, how he's going to receive his rightful inheritance. So he will do it, we're going to learn, by means of a series of divine judgments that are about to be poured out upon the earth. And while the, the scroll is a scroll of doom and judgment, keep in mind that it is also a scroll of redemption. It tells us how Christ will redeem the world, how he will buy back for God what was lost and he will restore all that has been destroyed and ruined by sin. It's symbolics, you see, of what is at stake in the great cosmic conflict. And it's a, it's, it's an inheritance, uh, that, uh, that was forfeited by our original parents, but it is about to be bought back by the Lord Jesus Christ. Paradise is about to be regained. Now, this chapter assures us that paradise will be regained because the glorified Christ 
is worthy to execute all the directives in that title deed of creation. He's the only one that can do it. And in, and, and in it, we see three reasons why we can be assured that paradise will be regained. First, we can, we can be assured that paradise will be regained because of the inquiry for the worthy one. The inquiry for the worthy one. In verse 2, it says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. A strong angel spoke with a loud voice so that the proclamation that he makes would penetrate into all parts of creation. And he's asking a question. He's making an inquiry. And he says, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals. See, this is the search for the worthy one. And what, what's he looking for? What does it mean to be worthy? He, he's saying, who is, who is a perfect character and of righteousness? Who is the divine heir that is qualified to break these seals? Who has the power to defeat Satan and all those who follow him? Who has the power to wipe out sin and its curse? Who has the ability to reverse the curse that has fallen upon all of creation? But as the echoes of this angel fade, there's silence. There's no one answering. All the angels remain silent. All the righteous dead of all the ages, including men like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and Job and and Moses and David and Solomon and Elijah and Elijah and Isaiah and Jeremiah and, and Ezekiel. And, and Peter and John the Baptist and, and Paul and all those great men. There's no voice. There's no one. It says no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or look into it. So a search of the entire universe turns up no one worthy to open the scroll. And so we read in verse 4, Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. The word weep is a word that expresses strong, unrestrained emotion. And this is the only time in Scripture that we see tears in heaven. W.A. Criswell explains why John wept. Here's what he says. John's tears represent the tears of all God's people through all the centuries. Those tears of the apostle John are the tears of Adam and Eve driven out of the Garden of Eden as they bowed over over the first grave, as they watered the dust of the ground with their tears over the silent, still form of their son Abel. Those are the tears of the children of Israel in bondage as they cried unto God in their affliction and slavery. They are the tears of God's elect through the centuries as they cried unto heaven 
They are the sobs and tears that have been wrung from the heart and soul of God's people as they look on their silent dead, as they stand beside their open graves, as they experience in the trials and sufferings of life heartaches and disappointments indescribable. Such is the curse that sin has laid upon God's beautiful creation. And this is the damnation of the hand of him who holds it, that usurper, that interloper, that intruder, that alien, that stranger, that dragon, that serpent, that Satan devil. And I wept audibly, audibly for the failure to find a redeemer meant that this earth in its curse is consigned forever to death. It meant that death, sin, damnation, and hell should reign forever and ever, and the sovereignty of God's earth should remain forever in the hands of Satan. End quote. John wept because he, he wanted to see the world rid of evil and sin and death. He wanted to see Satan vanquished and God's kingdom established. But, but John need not have wept. Because the inquiry for one worthy opens a a new dimension. It, It shows, it reveals that there is one who is worthy. And you see, we can be assured that paradise will be regained because of the identity of the worthy one. The worthy one, of course, is the glorified exalted Jesus Christ, identified here by three messianic titles. See, Jesus is worthy to open the scroll because he is the lion, the supreme ruler. He tells us in in verse 5, he says, And one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. So stop weeping, John, because there's one who has been found worthy. And he is the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. Now that that originates from Jacob's blessing on the tribe of Judah, given in Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 8. Listen to what it says. Judah, your brother, shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, as a lion. Who dares to rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now, a lion is the king of beasts. The, the lion, he rules the animal kingdom. He's the supreme ruler. And out of the tribe of Judah would come a, a fierce, strong, supreme ruler. He is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You, you If you think about it, the Jews were expecting their Messiah to be a lion. They were expecting him to be strong and to deliver them from the hand of their oppressors, the the Romans. 
And that's really one of the reasons that that they rejected him and and eventually crucified him is because they didn't see him as this great Messiah. Uh, tragically, the Jews completely misjudged him. But you, go, you see, because he is a lion and he will destroy his enemies, but he will do it according to his timetable, not theirs. And, and that day uh, that is coming is the day that is described here in Revelation chapter 5. So he is worthy to open the scroll because he is the lion, the supreme ruler. But he is also the root of David, the rightful king. And and that messianic title derives from Isaiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 and also picks up in verse 10. He says, Then a shoot will spring forth from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Then it will be, then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the, to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Now, as the genealogies in Matthew and Luke show us, Jesus was a descendant of David, both on his father's and his mother's side. And in Romans chapter 1 and verse 13, the apostle Paul tells us that that Jesus was born of a descendant of David according to the flesh. So you see, Jesus is worthy to take this scroll because of who he is. He is the rightful king from David's loins. He's the supreme avenging ruler, the lion of the tribe from Judah with the power to be able to destroy his enemies. And he has overcome, it tells us. Well, how did he overcome? Well, what's interesting is that he did not overcome as the avenging lion as or as the rightful king, but as the lamb. You see, he is worthy to open the scroll because he is the lamb the triumphant redeemer. It tells us in verse 6, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Instead of the anticipated lion of the tribe of Judah, when John looks at the throne, he sees a lamb. And that lamb is is standing as if slain. You see, uh, he's at the center of the throne. He's the focus of this scene in heaven. But the Lord Jesus Christ could not be the Lord of judgment or the Lord, the King of glory, unless he was first the lamb that came to take away the sin of the world. The, the word lamb, there is a shortened form of the word that refers to a little lamb or a, a pet lamb. And, and the imagery comes to us from the Passover where the people of God were required to take this little lamb into their homes for four days 
before they sacrificed it. So that little lamb essentially became a pet in their home. It, it garnered their affections in the time that it was. So when they had to go and they had to sacrifice that little lamb, that little pet, it was much more difficult for them. It, it, it showed them the, the significance of what was happening in that sacrifice. It wasn't cold and detached, but it was very personal and relational. And the while every lamb sacrificed under the old covenant pointed toward Christ, he is only referred to as a lamb once in the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? That's in Isaiah 53 and verse 7. In the New Testament, outside of Revelation, he's only called lamb four times. But in the book of Revelation, he is referred to as a lamb 31 times. Jesus is the lamb, the the great redeemer. And three characteristics indicate his worthiness as the lamb. He is worthy, first of all, because of his victory over sin. It says in verse 6 that, that he was a lamb was standing as if slain. Now, he's, he's standing. That is, he's alive. He's on his feet. And yet, he's looking as if he has been slain. That is, literally, that he's been slaughtered. It's evident that this lamb has been slaughtered. The, the deadly wounds that this lamb has received are evident. It's apparent. And there's no mistaking that this is a picture of Christ. Death and resurrection. He's standing. He's alive. He is raised, though he was crucified. And see, all our sin and the sin of the world was placed on him, but the grave could not hold him. He rose from the dead. He has overcome sin and death. And so he has already defeated sin and death. He's already defeated Satan and his forces at the cross. And he is about, you see, to consummate that victory. But he's also worthy because he of his absolute power. The lamb had, it says, seven horns. And of course, horns in Scripture symbolize strength and power. That's what animals use to fight with and show their domination of their horns. And so it's, it's talking about his, his strength, his absolute power. And the fact that he has seven horns, the number of perfection, symbolizes that it's complete, it's perfect, it's absolute. He has absolute power. He is omnipotent. And he is worthy because of his perfect omniscience. Verse 6 continues, And seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. The Lamb also had seven eyes. Again, noting, you know, this completion or this perfection in his understanding, in his knowledge. In other words, he is all-knowing. He is omniscient. And the eyes represent, we are told, the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. As we've previously seen, that phrase, the seven spirits of God, describes the Holy Spirit in his fullness. And and here, as in 
chapter 4 and verse 5, the Holy Spirit is seen in His fullness in regard to judgment. And this here, the Holy Spirit goes out into all the world and He searches the hearts and minds. He knows all things and all people and He is going to bring into judgment all of those who are apart from Christ. No one escapes the judgment of the Lamb who has become the avenging Lion King. Now, verse 7 records the the final monumental act in, in this heavenly scene. See, everything that John has been describing since the beginning of chapter 4 uh, is about to come to fruition. The ultimate goal of redemption is about to be seen. Paradise will be regained, Eden restored. Before John's wandering eyes, the Lamb, it says in verse 7, came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Folks, that's significant. Uh, This is the same scene that is described for us in Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13. Although now Daniel doesn't mention the scroll, but listen to to the similarities. He says, I looked, I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the cloud of heaven, One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days, that's the father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. See, the worthy one has come to take back that which is rightfully his. He overcame in the trials of life. He overcame in the temptations in the wilderness. He overcame in the agonies of the garden. He overcame in the terrors of death. He overcame in the, in the bonds of the grave. And he has gone up taking captivity captive. He's the victor now over law, over sin, over death, over Satan, over all things. And he has paid the redemption price that was forfeited, that was forfeited by our original parents. You see, he's proven himself worthy to open those seals. And as he opens those seals, then the judgment is about to begin. See, that's our, that's our confidence, that's our assurance that he is truly worthy. And because he is worthy to open those seals, we can be assured that paradise will be regained. And that's really kind of what we find in the, the visions that follow. The visions that follow are just the, the happening of this, the, the unfolding of these judgments that we're going to see. But there's one other point that we want to, to point out uh, this morning, and that is the inauguration of the worthy one. This is another reason why we can be assured that a paradise is going to be regained. You know, an inauguration is, according to the dictionary, it's the beginning or the introduction of a system, a policy, a period, or an administration. 
Of course, when a king or a queen or a president are inaugurated, well, it's a big deal. I mean, there are a lot of, of festivities and speeches and all kinds of things that happen associated. And so it is in the book of Revelation. As the Lamb moves to take this scroll that represents the beginning of his new administration, this administration of, of taking back what is rightfully his, praise breaks out in all the universe. Uh, the praise accelerates until it rises to a crescendo until it finally comes to its uh, climax. And again, this outburst of worship results from the realization that the long-anticipated defeat of sin and death and Satan is about to be accomplished and that the Lord Jesus will return to the earth and he, in triumph he will establish his glorious kingdom here. So the curse will be reversed. A believing remnant of Israel is going to be saved. The, the church is going to be honored and going to gain the privilege of ruling with Christ on the earth. All this you know, pent-up anticipation of millennia suddenly burst forth at the end of this, this great chapter. We see all these wondrous realities that have already been described for us about, that refer to the Lamb. We see them reaffirmed and, re, and, and reinforced in praise. So the Lamb is being praised because of the redemption that he has accomplished. And that redemption that he has accomplished is the buying back. It's the redeeming. It's the, it's the taking back all that was forfeited originally. And we read in, in verse 8, When he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. Now, harps are associated with two things in the Old Testament, praise or worship and prophecy. And in this context, the harps probably represent the prophecies uh, that God's pe God made to his uh, people through the ages. These are the things that God has promised to them. The, the golden bowls full of incense, we're told, symbolize the prayers of the saints, and these are the prayers of God's people that have risen to heaven throughout the ages. These are the requests. These are the, the cries, the moans, the, the requesting, oh, God, help. God, make it different. Ch help us and change things. And see, the harps and the bowls together indicate that all that the prophets have promised, all that the peop God's people have prayed for is about to be accomplished about to be fulfilled. In verse 9, it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And throughout Scripture, a new song is a song of redemption. And you see, he's telling us that it was through Christ's shedding of his own blood that he purchased for God men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. That word purchase is a word for redemption that pictures someone buying or purchasing slaves off of the slave market and then setting them free. And at the cross, 
The, the lamb paid the purchase price to redeem you and me from sin, and he also paid the purchase price to redeem all of creation. And so the song moves on to express the results of the redemption. He tells us in verse 10, you have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth with Christ. And you see, as priests, well, we have complete access into the presence of God And as believers, we are going to reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. Verse 11 goes on. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Basically, what he's communicating here is just an innumerable host of angels all joining in the praise of the Lamb. And this vast host at verse 12 is is saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. Now, this is not saying that there's something lacking in Christ that he needs to receive from God. It's simply saying that we he is worthy to be acknowledged that he has these things. He already has them. He is worthy of us acknowledging him. And then uh, as the great hymn reaches its crescendo, verse 13, he says, every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them join in. And this this mighty chorus cries out, it continues in verse 13, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. Lost in the wonder and love and praise, it tells us in verse 14 that the four living creatures could only keep saying, Amen, Amen, Amen. And the elders fell down once again and worshiped. You may recognize that this passage is the basis for Handel's closing chorus in his masterful composition, The Messiah. It closes with one of the most beautiful musical numbers ever written. It's called Worthy is the Lamb. And at the end of that chorus, everyone joins in and they repeat the declaration. Amen, amen, amen. You with that, remember what that means? That means this is true. This is absolutely true. This is reliable. This is dependable. We, this is our assurance that there's going to come a great redemption. That all that was lost in the forfeiture will be regained. Paradise will be regained. And that comes from the worship of the entire universe. You know, when those seven seals are opened, at that moment in time, everybody in the world is on one side or the other of those seals. They are at the, you are on the side that is that is worshiping and praising and wanting and desiring to see this happen. 
or you're on the other side with the usurper that's seeking your, to gain your own place in the world and have your own dominion and have your own control in the world. You know, every one of us should ask ourselves, where am I really? Where do I stand? Which side of that do I stand upon? I hope you stand on the side with Christ. If you've not, you can always turn to him because, friend, he is the worthy lamb. He is the one. He's the the lion of the tribe of Judah, the supreme ruler. He is the rightful king, the root of of David, and he is the lamb, the, the great redeemer. I hope you're on his side as this comes. Call upon him and ask him to put you on his side if you've not done that. We look forward to the days ahead as we look to see what is going to happen as these seals are open. May God bless you.